Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. In today's podcast, I interview New York Times best-selling author and psychotherapist, Lori Gottlieb, on her amazing book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Lori also writes the weekly Dear Therapist column for The Atlantic. We talk about the stages of change, how we change in relation to others, how change and loss travel together as we let go of the narratives of our past, which have kept us jailed. How, when we don't process our issues, we become our own jailers. We also talk about how therapy is a process of self-understanding, where we learn how to accept feedback, tolerate discomfort, become aware of blind spots, and discover the impact of our histories on ourselves and others, and that sometimes we are the cause of our own difficulties. And if we step out of our own way, something astonishing happens. But before we begin with today's podcast, I just want to remind you that these podcasts are for educational purposes and not medical advice. If you need medical advice, please seek the appropriate medical professional. And one more thing, I am thrilled that this year I am running my annual mental health conference live in Dallas, 2nd to the 4th of December. As you know, last year, because of the COVID pandemic, we had to do it virtually, but we are back in person this year, and I'm so excited. Early bird tickets are available till the 30th of July. It's going to be phenomenal. We've all been battling with the whole pandemic, how it impacted our lives, the different stages and, and how it's affected people at different ages and stages of their life. So this conference is really going to be a mental health retreat to help you and I manage the mental mess that has come about from the pandemic and even before the pandemic. It's going to be very practical with techniques and solutions, and we have phenomenal guest speakers, and I can let you know about one of them. Michelle Williams is one of our guest speakers, a very special friend of mine who used to sing with Destiny's Child, who has an amazing story about how she coped with depression. She's going to be speaking there. We also are offering CMEs and CEUs. So go to the link in the show notes and register, get the early bird special, and I'm so excited to see you there. And now, back to today's podcast. Laurie, I've been so looking forward to this interview. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it also. Well, I think you're amazing. And I was telling you just before we started, and I have to repeat the story, that I put the cover back on, but the pages of this book, are of your amazing book that we're going to be talking about, are literally have been wet and dried so many times because I read this in my infrared sauna. And that's where I really go and chill and have my downtime. And I have to tell you, as I was reading this book, 
I felt like I was in therapy and I was laughing and, and be, I felt inspired and, you know, just everything, you just say what we know, but you say it in such a way that is so profound. So I want to thank you up front for the impact your book has had on myself and on my family. My kids love you. My four adult kids, 50% of them have read your book and the others are going to read it from what we've said. So thank you so much. I just wanted to start by telling you those nice little things. Well, that's that's really great to hear. And I love that you read it in a sauna. I think that's a good combination given the content of the book. I agree. It's perfect. It was so good. I tell you, I couldn't put it down. It was in, and it's when I prepare for interviews, I always read through the books and look for, you know, like really juicy bits to talk about. And I ended up like underlining, okay, I've got to ask you this, this, the whole book's like, you know, stars and arrows. So I thought we'll just progress through. And first of all, let's start off by you just telling my audience a little bit about you. I know most people do know you, but just tell them who you are, what you do, and then we'll dive into what you do with your life, which is phenomenal. Sure. So I'm a psychotherapist and I'm the author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. And I have a podcast called Dear Therapist, where we do sessions with people and give them advice that they try out and come back and tell us how it went. I write the weekly Dear Therapist column for The Atlantic. And I have a TED Talk out there sort of based on maybe you should talk to someone about how changing our stories can change our lives. Well, the book that Laurie is talking about is something that you definitely need to read. Maybe you should talk to someone. It's just profoundly down to earth about how we need to be human and recognize that our this is how my interpretations, what I say so much with my work, is that we all humans, we all battle. Life is tough. Adverse circumstances come, whether you like it or not, you are going to experience those and we have to process them and we have to get them out. And you just outlined that so beautifully with the stories that you tell using yourself and obviously privacy with your clients. You've changed, changed that, the names and so on. So I'm going to ask you up front, why did you write this book? Even though it sounds like I gave the answer, but from your side, why did you write this book? Well, it's interesting because this wasn't the book that I set out to write. And in Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, I talk about how originally I was supposed to be writing a happiness book. I saw that. And that was, I love that. I love that. I actually dog-eared that page because I wanted to ask you about that. So you care. Yeah. So, so you know, I, I'd actually written a, a parenting article in the for the cover of The Atlantic and it, it went viral and people wanted me to write the parenting book. And I didn't want to write that book. I said, I'm really interested in writing about what's happening with the adults. And they said, oh, you want to write a happiness book? And I said, no, <laughs> I don't want to write a happiness book. I want to write about your life. And, you know, because I feel like as a therapist, I have the privilege of seeing our humanity in a way that nobody who's not a therapist doesn't get to see it. They don't, they don't have those kinds of conversations. We don't tend to talk about our lives in such an honest and raw and authentic way. And so I, and, and I, what I think is really interesting is that people assume that my work as a therapist is really depressing. People say, well, oh, you listen to stories of, of pain and difficulty all day. And I said, no, it's the opposite. I'm looking at people as they grow and transform and change their lives. And I see these heroic moments, these moments where they've done something that they never were able to do before, where a year later, their lives look completely different. And so for me, it's a really hopeful way of, of looking at, at the human condition. And so in the book, you know, in the happiness book, I said, you know, this is not what I want to do. I want to bring people into the therapy room so they can see what I see, not just because it's really inspiring, but also because we can see ourselves most clearly through the lens of other people's stories. So if you say to someone, 
you do this, you sabotage your relationships, or you have trouble with this, or you know, this is how you're pushing people away, or here's how you get in your own way. People say, no, 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 I don't do that. That's not me. But if they see themselves reflected in somebody else's story, they say, oh yeah, I do that too. So it takes away the shame. It makes them feel less alone. And then they can grab the lesson. So I, I ended up canceling what I called the miserable depression-inducing happiness book because I was depressed, right? It felt so disconnected from something meaningful, something that would really help people. And I also feel like happiness as a byproduct of living our lives is, I think, what we all strive for. But happiness as the end goal itself is often a recipe for disaster. So I wanted to write about how we can have meaningful lives that will lead to a life that feels fulfilling and, again, leads to this kind of happiness that I think we're seeking. So in the book, I follow the lives of four very seemingly different patients who, of course, you can see how at our core, we're all very much the same. And then the fifth patient in the book is me as I go through my own struggle and I go to a therapist. So you're seeing the therapeutic process from both the vantage point of clinician and patient. It's totally consuming and absorbing. It's really, I've been in this field for 38 years and this really, and I've read so many books, and this, your book, the stories, it's, it's that story narrative, it, 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 but it's the way you handle it, the way you show, as you said, the lives of four patients and then you fifth patient. So you've got the insight of the insight on the insight kind of thing. It's fascinating and very well written. It's very absorbing. And it's very easy. It's an actually incredibly easy read, a quick read and full of lessons. You know, you feel each person as you, as you go through the book, you feel, I can relate. I can understand. So you're so right when you say, we see what we don't see through other people's stories. We, I mean, we see what we don't see in our own lives, sorry, through other people's stories. And I love that. And, I, and I'm so pleased that you, did, that you didn't write another book on toxic positivity or something like that or happiness, <laughs> that you actually dived into humanity. You dived in and give us permission to be, you know, ourselves, which is fantastic. I wanted to come back to when you're talking about the happiness book. And I, I was going to ask this at the end, but I'm going to ask it now. It's something that people ask me a lot about as well. The difference between counseling and therapy, because that was kind of the advice that got you into what book you should write in the end and how you actually stepped into the to writing this book. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe even that discussion with your therapist? It was chapter 49. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people don't really understand what therapy is. And so they don't get help because they think it's not for them. And so I think that some people think that therapy is you go to therapy, you talk about your childhood forever and you never leave. And all you do is sort of download the problem of the week. And so what's the point of it? That is not what therapy is. I think in the book, you can see that it's a very intentional process. The conversations are very, very intentional and you're, you're moving someplace, right? And I think that goals are very much a part of it. The other misconception about therapy is that you're going to get advice. And that's what counseling is, right? So counseling therapy is really looking inside of yourself and understanding who you are, what your patterns are, what's holding you back. You know, what stories are, are still lingering that maybe aren't accurate? How are you being an unreliable narrator of your own life? Those kinds of things. Counseling is, I have this specific issue and tell me what to do. I think that we all have our own answers inside of us. And we sometimes just don't have access to those answers. And so what therapy can do is it can help you to get access to your place of knowing inside because we all have that place, but it gets, it gets drowned out by the culture, by the people around us. So many times people say, you should do this or don't do this, or it's not okay to do this. 
And we then we feel like we need permission to do the thing that we know inside is right for us. It might not be right for somebody else, but it's right for us. So there's a chapter in the book where everybody is telling me that I need to write this happiness book that, of course, just does not feel meaningful to me in any way. And there are all these reasons that they have for that. But I know that the book that I am meant to write that I think will really help people is this other one. And I end up going against what everybody else says. And I write, maybe you should talk to someone. When I tried to sell, maybe you should talk to someone. Everyone said, first of all, I couldn't sell it because, and now of course, you know, over a million copies have been sold and and it's still going. So, and and so I I only mentioned that because people said, nobody's going to read this book. People want to read the happiness book or the parenting book. But I had this place of knowing inside that, no, I know that there's something in here. When I wrote the book, I was so open and honest about my side of it, my being in therapy, edit myself because I thought, okay, well, maybe what if they're right and only three people read this book, then I don't really have to worry about how I come across. I don't have to worry about, you know, revealing these things. And then, you know, I'm really glad that that I that I didn't know ultimately how many people would read it because I think I would have tried to edit myself a little bit. And I think that the reason that so many people have read it is because it's not edited, because I'm not trying to present a curated version of myself because I'm presenting myself as I really am. And I think people can see themselves as they really are in me and in the other people in the book. When you do what you love, like running, like racing, like enjoying the great outdoors, you want to do it for life. Inside Tracker can help. Inside Tracker was founded in 2009 by leading scientists in aging, genetics and biometrics. Using their patented algorithm, Inside Tracker analyzes your body's data to provide you with a clear picture of what's going on inside of you and to offer you science-backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. Then Inside Tracker tracks your progress every day, every step of the way towards reaching your performance goals and living a longer, healthier life. For a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com Dr. Leaf. The link and details will be in the show notes. You actually do demonstrate that what therapy is. You demonstrate that you've done that inner work and you demonstrate the frustrations of how we don't always see ourselves. We don't see the layers and how we present the initial problem, but there's all these layers underneath and how you know all that. And it's easy to advise someone else with what I would call the wise mind, but you had to go through the process of therapy to actually peel those layers off and see what was really underneath. And it took the perspective of your therapist to help you see that. And that in itself is just so beautiful and so enlightening. And, and so in, in a world today where we've got so much stigma around mental health, you really do destigmatize it with your approach. So it's, it's really great. I love it. Okay, well, there's just so much. I'm going to start. I'm just going to go through and pick the certain things that a, a million NBs that I've got, you know, <laughs> stars. And we'll just, just chat and see where it goes. With it. So the first thing you say, which really caught my attention, you said in the author's note, how do we change? And it, and the answer was in relation to others. And I loved that. That really got my attention because not, and I know we talk about that, but just the way you said it is so vitally important. I'm a great fan of, of, and I've done a lot of work around quantum physics, if, theoretical quantum physics in, in my own clinical research in trying to understand all these different things about mind and brain. And there's one of my favorite quantum physicists talks about the fact that it's not about you, it's about you in the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I read that phase of yours, it reminded me of that. So I'd love you just to talk about that. Sure. Well, I think humans are inherently relational. 
In fact, when when you look at studies of people who are put in, let's say, in prison, in solitary confinement, they literally go crazy. You know, like we cannot be alone. And I think that our culture sells us something different. And I say sells us because they're trying to sell us on this idea, consumerism, of doesn't matter about other people, like focus on yourself, you know, and, and, and all about bettering yourself and individually, but not in the context of the people around you. And I think that people get into trouble in relationships because they think, well, if the other person doesn't want to do it this way, then I'm out or, you know, whatever. Yes, it, is. it breeds a bit of selfishness, doesn't it? Well, well, I think it I think what it does is it, it really takes away this idea of we want to be in relationship with other people and we are two separate people or however many people you're talking about, whether it's a group or an individual. And I, I think what happens is boundaries are important, but boundaries have been morphed into something else on Instagram, for example, of, you know, like a boundary. People think a boundary is I'm going to tell you that this is what you need to do and you're going to do it. And no, boundaries are not about controlling. Right. Boundaries are not about controlling other people. A boundary is something you set with yourself. So a boundary is, you know, I'm going to ask that you not yell at me when you get upset. And then you have a boundary with yourself. If the person yells at me, what am I going to do? Because I can't control whether they're going to yell at me. I can tell I don't that that I find that very upsetting and, and that's very hurtful to me. And so they can either stop yelling, which you hope they do, or. If they yell, you can have a boundary with yourself. Like if they yell, I'm going to end that conversation in a polite way. And I'm going to say, we'll come back to it later when we can have a calmer conversation, or I'm going to go take a walk to calm myself down, or I'm going to choose that after three years of this or a year of this, or however long you've been in that situation, I'm going to say, you know what? I've asked you to not yell at me. This is not, this is not healthy for me. I'm, I'm no longer going to be in this relationship. Right. So it's a boundary that you've kept with yourself about what you're going to do to, to keep yourself in a healthy place, but it's not about how you're going to change the other person. They get to choose if they're going to change. You can request it, but it's up to them to change. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And it's, as you say, you're relating to people, but you have to, I love how you've also commented on the fact that boundaries, it's almost like exploded as another level of control. And I never thought of it like that till you said it, but it's such a thing in social media. It's everywhere. And I think it has become a little distorted. I don't know if you're familiar with the study about when people and going back to the, the whole thing about the society being this very neoliberalistic, capitalistic, it's all about productivity, push, get the end goal. You know, survival of the fittest, climb to the top. You've got to produce, produce, you know, all your values in what you can externalize. And there's a study showing that the more times we say, I, myself, me, I, in a conversation, you increase, there's a proportional increase to your chance of getting a heart attack in the next, by 42% in the next 12 months, which is super interesting because it just shows that we are moving away from that relational aspect when we focus, doesn't mean we don't have to focus on ourselves, but it's I within that relationship. It's about me in the world. And I, and then that's what I have see happening so much in your book is you emphasize the relational aspect, but there's also the honoring of your own boundary, but there's not trying to control others because others have to make their own choices. And that's so evident in your book. And you, you really make that very clear, which I love. Yeah. And I think what you're talking about is this epidemic of loneliness that we, you know, especially I think we saw during the pandemic, but it, it was there before. And I think just people became more aware of it, of, of how important it is that we have connection and what happens to us, like 
depression, anxiety. And as you said, you know, the mind-body connection. So we actually become more at risk for not only heart disease, but cancer, autoimmune issues, everything when we don't have connections in our lives. And, and by connections, I mean meaningful connections. So, so many times people will say on Instagram, hey, I'm going to share this thing with you that I've never shared with anyone before, like the, the Instagram community. And, and, and then everyone says, oh, you're so vulnerable. That's so amazing. True vulnerability to me is sitting on a couch face-to-face with someone who's important to you and saying, I'm going to sh- show you something about me. And I'm going to trust our relationship in the sharing of this. And let's see what happens, right? So true vulnerability is sitting face-to-face with someone who matters, where the stakes are high because this person matters to you in real life. And what happens when you take off the mask? And that's a completely different experience than doing something on social media where you get likes. And I'm not anti-social media at all. I'm I'm just differentiating between what we're calling vulnerability because sometimes people are so, feel so much more comfortable being quote unquote vulnerable in the context of behind a screen, in the context of face-to-face with another person. And when you talk about the relationship, I'm thinking about this study that shows that the most important factor in the success of people's therapy is the relationship with, with the, the Yes, there's so much about that. I'm so glad you brought that up. That's what the key is in good therapy. Right. So, so it matters more than the modality the therapist uses, the number of years of experience they have, their theoretical orientation. All of that matters. Don't get me wrong. That's very important. But what's even more important is the relationship you have with your therapist. And that just shows how relational we are, that you can't get this work done if you don't have a solid, what we call a therapeutic alliance with that person. And some people like to think of their therapist as like, well, I'm paying this professional, so I don't really have a relationship with them. But you do. You're two humans sitting in a room having this incredibly intimate experience that's incredibly transformative. And I think for both people, people don't think about that either. And that's something that I that I, you know, touch on in the book is that, you know, we're kind of mirrors reflecting mirrors reflecting mirrors that when somebody is coming to therapy, that Obviously, the session is about them, so I'm not doing my own therapy in the room there, but certainly they're asking questions about life and the human condition that I have to ask myself, that I'm forced to ask myself, because if if they're asking those questions, I certainly have to You've got to ask them as well. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. So it's the deep, meaningful connection, which is very much not part of our very individualistic focus in our current society. And there's so many research studies also showing that about the, the, the when we move away from that from sort of a community focus to the individualistic focus, that it how it affects people just in terms of everything. And yes, it isn't. And, and as you mentioned on social media, I'm so glad you mentioned that there's this, it is very in fashion to be vulnerable and authentic, but it's a very different kind of vulnerability. And yes, it's good that people are opening up and that people that are influencers are talking about what they're going through because it's allowing people to express themselves. And we need that because only 3% of leaders are talking about their, their emotions, their mental health. But at the same time, you you point out a very valid point that that the real deep stuff is sitting down face to face and with someone that you that you trust and how's that going to impact and talking about those real deep things and that transformative relationship in therapy. Beautiful. Right. And we get that in so few experiences in life where you're sitting face to face with another person with no phones, no screens, no other distractions. So, you know, it's maybe the one place for a lot of people where they can sit face to face with another person in the same space, not through a screen in regular times, 
And there's no distraction. It's not like, hey, let me look at this text or your phone is beeping or something like that. And, and I think that the reason that most people struggle in life is they're struggling with this question of how can I love and be loved? I think ultimately that is what we all want. When you take away all of the other things about, you know, all of the things that, that we're told we need to be or do, be, be worthy people. I think at the end of the day, most of us say, how can I love and be loved? And that's where people's, you know, where they feel a deficit if they're struggling with something. I agree with you. It's that core need that we have as humans. And on the on sort of the clinical neuroscience side and the neurobiological side, we were literally wired for love. I mean, that was a statement made by a, prior, a Nobel Prize winning researcher. You know, and we see that we have this optimism bias. So we're drawn towards that survival instinct, which is love. So, and even in quantum physics, we see that the gravitational fields have kind of a love wave to them. So it's just, there's a lot of, there's just so much from so many angles confirming that very reality that you've spoken about. I think that's, that's amazing. Okay. So let's, oh, I love it. Okay. You have such great titles in your different sections. You've got four different sections of your book. So just very quickly, can you just tell us why you've broken it up into four sections? And then, I mean, they very, the, 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 the titles are very captivating. Just very quickly, and then I'm going to dive into more detail. Yeah, you know, I think that the book sort of organically unfolds in a way that each chapter is in conversation with the chapter before and after it. You know, there are like themes running through. At, at the beginning of the book, I say that my most significant credential is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race. And, and that I know what it's like to be a person in the world. I know what it's like to struggle. And so I think that when you see the themes throughout, and I'm going to say the five patients, including myself there, that all of our stories are very different, but they all overlap in these core ways. And so I think that the four parts are about sort of the evolution of where we all are on this in this process of transformation. And when I talk about transformation, by the way, I don't want people to get the wrong idea that suddenly you go to therapy and you know you your life is like a completely different thing and you become a completely different person. It's more about how do you navigate through the world more smoothly? How do you manage the things that have been tripping you up? How do you see patterns that maybe you're going to, that maybe have been holding you back and you didn't even realize that? So it's it's a different way of finding peace. It doesn't mean that all your problems go away. There's a quote in the book, you know, that that I'm going to paraphrase, but it's that peace doesn't mean that all your troubles go away. It's that that you live with them in a different way. You have a different relationship to what happens to us in our lives. And so the four sections are you can see like there's sort of the phase where we don't really know what the problem is. Usually when people come to therapy, they want something to change, but what they want to change is someone else or something else out there. I love that. I love how you emphasize that. It's so good. Right. The problem is, you know, it's my partner, it's my mother, it's my child, it's my boss, it's my sibling, it's my, it's, it's this thing or that thing, right? And it's not that there aren't difficult people out there. We have a saying in therapy, before diagnosing someone with depression, make sure they aren't surrounded by assholes, right? So, so we're not saying like that it's not true that these people are difficult. We're saying, but what is your role, right? So where's your agency in this? So people come in in this victim position of, you know, all this is happening to me and I am helpless in it and there's nothing I can do about it. When in fact, our reaction to the difficulty is just as important as what the difficulty is. Oh, I love that. You know, in the research that, that I do, the clinical trials I did recently, what I found one of the major things was like literally a pathway to empowerment, that as soon as people recognize their agency in their life, 
that you can't change what's happened to you, but you can change what's in you, which then influences how it plays out into your future. As soon as people make that that transition or that re- recognition, there's a massive improvement in how they function. And and we saw like an, literally an 81% improvement in people's functioning once they recognize the agency. So we even had subjects saying things like, oh, I'm more depressed after going through the process of digging down deep inside through the systems and stuff that I developed. But the depression was different. So instead of saying I am depressed, they've gone their transition from I am depression to I am depressed because of, and I'm more depressed because I'm seeing why I'm depressed, but I actually understand the depression so I can manage it. That's, I think, what I hear you saying. It's that yeah. kind of transformation that I, I recognize where the depression is coming from. And it's really sad to know about my roots of that terrible stuff that happened or whatever, but I know what to do. I know how to start transforming. I'm not in the dark. I have agency again. Well, I think what happens is people have these stories that they developed growing up. And the stories were actually very valid at the time because they didn't have agency. When you're a child, you don't have don't have agency. Mm-hmm. And then you grow up and you still think that you're trapped. You still think you're in jail. And so people walk around the world with that story. So there's this moment in the book where I'm with my own therapist, who's called Wendell in the book. And he says to me, you know what? You remind me of this cartoon. And it's of a prisoner shaking the bars, desperately trying to get out. But on the right and the left, it's open. No bars. The prisoner is actually not in jail. And the thing is, so the question is then, if the bars are open, why do so many of us not walk around those bars? So first you have to realize as an adult, the bars are open. You actually do have choices. You might not have every opportunity in the world, but you certainly have some choices. So just knowing, okay, what, what, you know, the fact that you have choices and then what are your choices? And then what does it mean to walk around those bars? Some people don't walk around the bars because freedom is a double-edged sword. Freedom on the one hand is something we say we want. We want all this kind of freedom. Freedom is also scary because with freedom comes responsibility. So if we are to take responsibility for our lives, now anything that happens, we can't blame on other people. We have to say, you know what? This is me now because I made that choice. If I make that choice, what if it's the wrong choice? What if I mess up? We have to know that as humans, we will mess up. We will learn from our mistakes. So walking around the bars is scary because that means we have to take responsibility for our own lives. That is the that is the sign of adulthood when you finally take responsibility for your own well-being. Mm, I am so pleased you said that. It was one of the questions I wanted to ask you was that very thing of that taking responsibility because I know I'm sure you've had this. I, I know you've had this in your experience with working with patients, which which I've had, which is one of the things that people will say, I just can't. I'm a victim. I and yes, there's a victim. We can't go. And if someone was traumatically abused, that's not their fault. That there's not a lesson there. You need time for healing. But there, there's there's a point where you have to get around the bar and actually go onto the other side. Otherwise, you're going to live tied into that that all the time. And then there's other things that people whatever. So just this whole ability to to choose to recognize that. I think what I'm trying to ask you is, do you do you see that as quite a common problem where people will have an issue and they're so used to having that coping mechanism, which is not sustainable, but it was a coping mechanism at the time of the trauma, but it's become a behavior pattern that's not sustainable. It's affecting relationships, functionality, anxiety. And, but they're hanging on to that because it's almost like a position of power where through that they can get the, maybe the attention that they're wanting or it's very scary to let go, whatever. There's a multitude of reasons why people would hang on to the bars. Well, You know, I would say what happens is the prisoner who was the child in a traumatic situation becomes their own jailer as an adult. Oh, that's so good. That's a great explanation. They don't 
they don't understand that they are free, that they are not in jail anymore. You see that there, there are actually two patients in the book that I write about. One is in her 20s and one is about to turn 70. So you can see how that manifests at different stages of life when you are your own jailer and how do you break free. And so it's not that the trauma is going to go away. It's not that, that you're not going to feel pain around that. It's that you're going to have a different relationship to the trauma and a different relationship to the pain so that you don't become the person who traumatizes yourself as an adult. And I think that's really important. And the thing about change is that it's really hard. People don't understand that this is why New Year's resolutions fail, by the way, on sort of a lighter note, because people think that you make a decision, I'm going to do this healthy thing for me and I'm going to change. And because it's a positive change, I should be motivated to do it and I, sh and I should want to do it and I should be able to, to make it happen. And so they make this New Year's resolution. And then what happens is, you know, they slip back and then they say, oh, wow, I, I failed. So forget it. Well, first of all, they don't understand what change is. So let me explain a little bit about what change is. Change is hard because we are giving something up, even if it's a positive change. We're giving up the familiar. Humans do not like uncertainty as a rule. We get very nervous around uncertainty. So we'd rather take the familiar thing, even if it's making us miserable, even if it's unpleasant, we would rather stick with the thing that's familiar than to let go of that, grieve it. Sometimes we even have to grieve the thing that's miserable. And then go into this place of uncertainty where you don't know what's going to happen. The other thing about change is that there are stages of change. It's not like you make the decision to change. And that's why these New Year's resolutions fail. So there are these stages. So it starts with pre-contemplation where you don't even know that you are, you know, that, that you want to make a change. So you're, it's kind of like not, it's outside of your awareness. It's be, be below your conscious level. And there's something stirring inside of you about, I'm going to, you know, I need to make a change, but you don't know that yet. Then there's contemplation where now it's, it's risen to your consciousness, but you're not ready to do anything about it yet. Then comes preparation where you're now making the steps to prepare to do it. Maybe you're going to investigate changing jobs. Maybe you're going to think about, I'm going to start dating again, or I'm going to get out of this bad relationship, or I'm going to start setting boundaries, whatever it is, or I'm going to be healthier and I'm going to exercise or I'm going to eat better, whatever it is that you're making preparation, you're making, or I'm going to, I have this, or I actually do drink too much. I have this addiction and I'm going to see what can I do to get treatment for it. And then there's action where you actually do the thing to make the change. This is the thing where that's when people announce the change, you know, on New Year's resolution. This is the thing, this is the change. And then the most important stage though, is not the stage of making the change. It's called maintenance. Maintenance is how do I maintain the change once I have made it? And the biggest misconception around maintenance is that you're going to just, you've made the change and you're going to stay in this place of maintaining the change. That is not true. You must expect that you're going to slip back, that you're going to have days that are harder than others, that you're going to go back to old coping mechanisms. And what you need in those moments is a huge dose of self-compassion. Because when you shame yourself, when you self-flagellate, you're drowning in shame and you're never going to get back up and say, I can try to take a risk again and try to make this change. You're going to say, well, that failed and I'm terrible and I'm a bad person and I'm weak and I'm, I'm hopeless and nothing will ever change, right? There's the story you, you create in your head around it, that narrative. So, so what you need to know is maintenance is about, it's not linear. It's about you make the change. Sometimes you're going to fall back. You just get right. You give yourself a big hug and you go right back to it the next day. And you say, what can I do to cope differently? If the, I'm using this as a coping mechanism, what do I do with my anxiety, my depression, my relational difficulty? That would be a healthier way of dealing with it. So I can maybe tomorrow get back and help get back into that maintenance phase of, of making the change.
And over time, the more that you go back to the maintenance phase after slipping back, the stronger it's going to be embedded in you, the change. And the longer term, you're going to be able to maintain that change. That is beautiful. Brilliant. I'm sitting here thinking, wow, that is such a beautiful explanation of change. And I'll give you a little numbers behind that because some science behind that, because one of the things that I don't know if you found this with your, with your patients, but there's certain periods where they just seem to get stuck and you know, there's like all this motivation and suddenly day four drops off. And these, so there's certain things. So I wanted to investigate and see how long does it really take to change a behavior? Because there's actually not that much research out there on that. And there's a lot of myth around the 21 day concept, which okay. was in the 60s, you know, the whole thing of the surgeon in the 60s. So there's very little actual scientific research. So I wanted to see from many different levels, how, how how long does it really take? And it takes around three weeks to to go through the first few phases. What you've said there's the is there's the unconscious level, so that's the coming in, sort of slightly coming into awareness. And there's that conscious. You called it the conscious, in, so the contemplative. The second, what was the first one? What did you call it? Mm, so pre contemplative, pre contemplative, and then contemplative. contemplation. So the, so the pre contemplative—that's because your unconscious mind and your brain know before you're conscious. You actually know it's in your wisdom. It's your wise mind. Okay. And so that, that aligns with, with that. Then you've got your contemplation, which is in your conscious mind. Then you've got the preparation and then the action and then the maintenance. Those first four phases occur, see, appear to occur within the first three weeks, more or less first three weeks. And we see the actual neuroplastic changes and things in the brain. But that's where people get stuck. And that's what you were just saying. If you stop there and that's what you showed, then you know, this is what I should be doing, but I'm not doing it. And that's where the shame, guilt, condemnation and all that stuff comes in, which breaks down a lot of does a lot of bad neurophysiology things in your mind, brain, body connection. But so you've got to go for at least another 42 days, which takes you to around about nine weeks. And those, those 42 days, it's, it's literally a minute to seven minutes a day of just practicing that new pattern way of thinking that will then put you to the point where you actually create a habit that is then sustainable, that will create behavior change. And even then, then it becomes an unconscious and even then, there's a bit of conscious work and then around about a few weeks later, it's sort of around about that nine weeks, in other words, to actually get to the phase where you you get behavior change. And what you're saying and what you've seen in therapy, what I've seen in therapy, is that people don't do that 42 days. They, they maybe didn't know, but they're not doing that that full nine-week cycle. And sometimes if it's really complex trauma, it's going to be multiple cycles. And it's that second part that is the easy, actually the easiest part, but it's the hardest part. But that maintenance without that, People just go round and round and round and round in circles. And so, yes, I just wanted to say that that I'm so glad you brought that up about change because that's the hard part is the time factor. And I would say another thing about change is that sometimes because people are, again, we talked about relationships in systems, whether you're in a family system or you're in a relationship or, you know, whatever it is, people around you, if they have unhealthy habits, they do not want you to change. Now, they might not be aware of this. They might not even be aware of it, right? So, but then all of a sudden they say to you like, oh, what do you mean you're not drinking? You're no fun anymore. Come on, it's your birthday. Just have one drink, right? Or, you know, oh, you. what do you mean you go to bed early now, right? Because you want to get sleep and you want to be healthy. Oh, come on, what party pooper, you know, whatever it is. Or, you know, w- whatever you're doing to to be healthier, whether that's, you know, emotionally healthier yeah, or- yeah. Boundaries, whatever. Boundaries, good boundaries. Exactly. Good, boundaries. <laughs> good healthy boundaries. People, you know, it's a system. And so if you if you become the healthy one in the system, then first of all, they have to look at themselves differently because now you're holding up a mirror to them in a way they didn't have to before. And secondly, like 
in in a family system in particular, if you were the person who was like the crazy one or the problem one, well, now you're not going to take that role anymore. Someone else is going to take on that role and nobody wants that role. It was so easy to make you the scapegoat, to make you what we call the identified patient. We call that the IP, the identified patient in the family. So you're the one who's the problem when actually you're the sanest one there because you're saying, hey, guys, there's a problem here. Right. And they're like, oh, no, no, you're crazy. You're the one who's difficult. You're too sensitive. You're difficult. You take it the wrong way. Right. So that's that's what happens with change in a system is that not only is the maintenance phase something where you have to give yourself a lot of self-compassion, but you have to not listen to the people who are trying to consciously or unconsciously sabotage your getting healthy, your change. That is brilliant. OK, so I know people are listening and saying, how do you do that? Can you give a bit of guidance around how to do that? Because that's just amazing. That maintenance phase, who's sabotaging you consciously or non-consciously and how do you manage it? I think as you make change, you make changes more global. So one change leads to another. It's almost like a snowball effect. So when you start to get healthy in one area, you start to get healthy in other areas. And soon you're very healthy in many areas. And so you see this all the time where somebody makes a change, say, in their family system, right? They set a boundary with somebody in their family or they make a change like they're going to take care of their drinking or they're going to change jobs or they're going to get out of a bad relationship. Then you see that they attract different people. So now they're attracting different situations and different people because we tend to attract people who are at similar levels of emotional development than we are. And so sometimes it looks like there's one person in a relationship that's much healthier than the other. But then you have to ask, why is the person who seems so healthy in relationship with the person who seems like they're really not, they haven't really done the work yet? So something, you know, someone who is truly emotionally healthy is going to choose someone who truly is doing the work and going through that process. So, you know, and, and, and you see that all the time, I think, with, with childhood things, too, where, you know, somebody says, oh, I'm going to choose a partner who's not like this person from my childhood who maybe didn't, you know, like was neglectful or was emotionally limited or had anger issues or had an addiction. And what do they do as an adult? As an adult? They find someone just like that parent. And it's not and, and it's interesting because they say, oh, my gosh, why do I keep doing that? And it's because it's that unconscious pull toward the familiar. It's like whenever they see someone like that, they first they think it, the person doesn't seem like that on the surface. And then they unconsciously, though, they're drawn to people like that. And they're kind of like, oh, you look familiar. Come closer. And then, you know, a, a week, a month, a year, two years into the relationship, they're like, oh, my gosh, this person is exactly like the person who hurt me as a child, you know, in some way. And so if you don't do the work, you end up with people like that. So when you start to make changes and you start to get healthy, you are surrounding yourself with people who are going to be supportive of your change instead of people who are going to sabotage your change. So important. That's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And it's so vital that people recognize that. And there may be resistance, you know, from the people, because you may have, because you also, I just wanted to ask you as well, like it could be loved ones that are really rooting for your change but they're not sure how to manage the changes that they see because you're different. And that's, so then what, yes. did, what does the person do just in, in, still in this direction? What would the, the person do then where they now healing, but the persons in the environment are still seeing them in the old way? Right, right. And they will for a long time. They won't see what you're actually doing. They're going to see everything through the lens of everything you did in the past. 
And so it will take a while for them to recalibrate and make that adjustment. And also you have to remember that the people around you as you're changing and they're watching you change, they're forced to change their role too. And just like we talked about change is hard for you, change is hard for them. So give them a little bit of time to get used to this, this new way of being that you're, that you're moving into because they're having to adjust to not only the change in you, but the change that it's bringing up in them in terms of their new role in your life. You've heard me mention the app Blinkist before, probably a few times by now. Well, have you downloaded it? If not, what are you waiting for? It's truly one of the most amazing and useful apps out there and so good for your mental and brain health. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need to know information from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. 8 million people are using Blinkist right now and it has a massive and growing library from self-help, business health to history books. Blinkist has the latest titles from bestsellers as well as the classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read but never had time to. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want, and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for my audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Dr. Leaf, try it free for seven days, and save 25% of your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Dr. Leaf to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkers.com slash Dr. Leaf. And discussions would be very important, wouldn't it? To say, look, this is what I used to do. I'm not like that anymore. This is how I'm managing it. I recognize it had this kind of impact on you. Those sort of conversations would be very necessary to help facilitate the process, wouldn't they? And, and also, this is how you can support me in this. And how can I support you as I'm going through this too? I love that. I love that because that thing, it's a shared, it's a shared, you know, it's a shared responsibility and everyone's, it's not you doing something wrong and I'm doing something right or you blocking me. It's how can we collaborate? It's that relational mm-hmm. thing again, isn't it? It brings back, mm-hmm. brings back the relational thing. Okay. So here I wanted to just jump in with a few couple of other things. You're just saying such beautiful stuff. I have to say it's just wonderful. You said something, you made a comment that I love, change and loss travel together. And because we're on the topic of change, I wanted to find that phrase. I, as you were talking, I remembered reading that phrase and I, it, it's so important. I, Can you just elaborate a little bit more because you've spoken so beautifully about change, how change and loss travel together. You've kind of intimated it, but let's just talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. You know, so so what I was talking about was the loss of the familiar, that we have to give up something, but also sometimes what we're giving up is a story. And so in my in the book, maybe you should talk to someone. And in my TED talk, I talk a lot about these stories that we walk around with. And they're stories that become almost a part of our identity that nobody else is hearing. We're saying it to ourselves. And so the stories are like, I'm unlovable. Or the story is, you know, I can't trust anyone. The story is, you know, I'm unworthy. The story is nothing will ever work out for me. Sometimes the story is the opposite. The story is is almost like the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction because there's a sort of a narcissistic defense. Like I'm smarter than everyone else. I'm better than everyone else. I know best, right? So we know those people too. And so, so the thing is that that those stories become so much a part of us that we become attached to them. And so when we talk about change and loss, when we're changing, we're giving up a story that's not just a story, but it's almost like a piece of our identity. And sometimes that's hard for us to do. So we have to understand that was not your true identity. 
that was something that was useful to you back then, or sometimes not that the I'm smarter than everyone might have been useful to you back then. The I'm unlovable was never useful. It was a story that came from somewhere else. It was something that someone else told you that you internalized that was completely inaccurate. But because we're kids, we take in this stuff and we take it as truth. We take it as gospel. And it's not true, but then it becomes confirmatory. So somebody in your life sends you the message, I'm unlovable. When you go out into the world and someone like maybe you're at school and someone doesn't want to sit with you, you say, see, it's true. I guess my mom or my dad. You kind of look for it, predicting it. So it's like a predictive pattern. Right. Now, another person who didn't grow up that way, someone doesn't want to sit with them at lunch might say, I'm going to go to another table and sit with the people who want to sit with me. And like, you know, that person's mean and I don't even want to be friends with them anyway. So you see how, how the story is different. That's very good. That's excellent. I'm so glad we brought that up. You said in, you make a statement here. It's still around that same area. I want to capture the process in which humans struggling to evolve push against their shells until they quietly, but sometimes loudly and slowly, but sometimes suddenly crack open. And so you're talking about the story of therapy and what you're trying to help people do. So it's kind of along the same line. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's very vivid because I, I, I think that we change. We like to say we change gradually then suddenly. And what I mean by that is there's all this stuff going on where you're doing all the work, you're doing all the work, you're doing all the work, and then something shifts, right? And then it might not be a big aha moment, but you start to notice that, oh, you're you're actually, you you walk through the world differently. You're starting to walk through the world differently. And I think that starts where you finally are able to say, I'm going to share the truth of who I am, and I'm going to, I'm not going to be afraid of what I find. And so, you know, and I, and I see this, there's sort of like a gender difference and I'm going to make sort of a gross generalization now, but this is what I see so often in therapy is that men will come into therapy and they will say, you know, I've never told anyone this before. And they truly have never told, told anyone something that, by the way, like as women, we would probably, you know, like we don't like, I, I think, wow, really that, you know, like, <laughs> and I have so much compassion for them because it's like, they have so much shame that even that. They wouldn't tell. And and even and this is even if let's say that like they're they're happily partnered and they have you know supportive family and they have friends, they still did not feel the toxic that masculinity as, pushing right, things toxic down. Toxic masculinity. Women will come in and they will say, you know, I've never told anyone this before, except for my mother, my sister, my best friend, right? So they've told like maybe one to three people because they don't feel so much shame. But I think that that we do have, all of us have it though which is this idea of, you know, if I show you who I really am, you won't like it, or I'm going to come off in a way that, and, and I think it goes back to that, that relational piece of, we want to be included. We want to be accepted that that's sort of just a basic human need. You know, we are relational creatures. And so, and I see that even in couples therapy where, you know, let's say I have a heterosexual couple and I see all kinds of couples. I see this in same-sex couples too, to a degree, but where one person, let's say it's, you know, the woman usually will say to the guy, like, I want to be closer to you. I really want to, I want you to open up to me. I feel like we've apart. There's this distance between us. So he does, he opens up to her and maybe he starts crying and maybe he starts crying a lot. Inevitably, she looks at me like a deer in headlights, like, oh my gosh, I wanted this, but I also, but I'm profoundly uncomfortable. And it's kind of like, I felt, I didn't feel safe when you weren't sharing your inner world with me, but I also don't feel safe when you're being this vulnerable with me. And so what happens is there's this like messaging that goes to men of, you are not allowed to feel, we want you to feel, but not too much, 
It's like it's like Goldilocks, right? Like, you know, not too much, not too little, but just right in the middle. And the problem is we can't have the kinds of relationships we want if we are limiting half of the, the people in the relationship, if we're limiting their range of feelings, if we're limiting how vulnerable they can be with us. And so we really have to change these gender roles around, you know, what is acceptable around emotionality and emotional health and communication and vulnerability. Mm, I love that. First and foremost, we are human. And then we've got to stop these role definitions for maleness and femaleness, which have just been going on way too long. I don't know if you ever watched Friends. Did you ever watch Friends, the series? I did, yeah. There's that one yeah. episode where the, the, the Rachel's, one of her boyfriends was very withdrawn, didn't talk, and then suddenly she kind of unleashed the the crying and he wouldn't stop crying. I mean, from being emotionless to crying so much that it was, I wanted something, but that was too much. <laughs> just as you were talking, I was thinking of that episode. Well, I think too that, that, you know, when men do open up, it's because they've been holding it inside for so long. And there's this, you know, incredible sense of isolation. And they, you know, I think in our definitions of masculinity, like you have to be strong. There's a, in, when I, when I write about John in the book, you know, he's this guy in his forties, who's married, he has some kids, he's had some trauma in his life. And he feels like he has to be the rock for his wife. Like she's the one who is doing double, you know, doing double processing of the trauma for both of them, because he feels like I have to be the solid one. But of course that, that creates all this tension in their marriage because she feels utterly alone in her in her grief and her sadness. And he feels like I can't I can't do this because it will it, like the whole house of cards will fall down, which is just not true. Once he opens up to her, then she doesn't have to shoulder the burden so much and they can connect. It's evenly distributed because each one's going to bring a perception to the party that the other one can't. And then the completion happens. So now that's brilliant. I love that chapter as well. It was really, really explanatory. Brilliant stuff. Okay, so you also said something that a little discuss fact. Therapists go to therapists, and then then you talk about that. But you said here we learn how to accept feedback. This is brilliant. I, I had to emphasize this because this is something we all as humans need to do. This is just a general statement. You've got so many of these great statements. We learn how to accept feedback, tolerate discomfort, become aware of blind spots, and discover the impact of our histories and behaviors on ourselves and others. I mean, you just summarized why everyone needs to go to therapy in that one statement. Do you want to just elaborate a little bit? I mean, such a self-explanatory statement, but it's beautiful. I feel like therapy is like getting a really good second opinion on your life from someone who's not in your life. And I say from someone who's not in your life because I feel like the people in our lives mean well, but sometimes they don't help us to see what the problem really is. And so in the book, I talk about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. So idiot compassion is what our friends tend to do. We say, listen to what happened with, you know, this person in my life, my boss, my partner, you know, whatever it is. And we say, yeah, that's terrible. You know, you're right. They were wrong. And it doesn't help the person to see anything new about the situation. And so, and, and by the way, if you listen to your friend's stories over time, you might have a friend who's sort of like a help-rejecting complainer. Help-rejecting complainers are people who, they say, here's my problem. And you say, well, what if you do this? And you're like, yeah, no, I can't do this because, and then you say, well, what about this? And they say, no, that won't work because, and so they don't really want a solution to the problem. They just want to complain. So if you listen to your friends over time, you might hear a pattern. And it's kind of like if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, maybe it's you. We don't say that in idiot compassion. We're like, we just, we just blindly support their version of the story. In wise compassion, which is what you get in therapy, we hold up a mirror to you to help you to see yourself in ways that maybe you haven't been willing or able to do. So maybe it's not that every guy you dated is a jerk, but maybe it's that when you go through their phones and you don't trust them, they get mad at you and break up with you. 
Okay. So, you know what I'm saying? Like there might be something that you're doing that is, that is exacerbating the problem or creating the problem or getting yourself into the same situation over and over again. So I think that therapy is a process where people who are not in your life can really help you to see something about yourself in a way that the people in your life just can't because you might get mad at them or you might feel unsupported or they don't feel comfortable sharing with you. So good. Excellent. Brilliant. Taking care of your body is a vital component to improving your mental health. As I often say, an undernourished brain is an anxious brain. You have to make sure your hardware is working so the software can run effectively. So, how do you ensure you're getting what your body needs daily? This is where Athletic Greens can help. Their daily all-in-one superfood powder is your nutritional essential. It is by far the easiest and most delicious nutritional habit that you can add to your healthy routine today, while avoiding the need to take multiple pills or add complex routines. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you one thing with all the best things. One tasty scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more that all work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase energy and focus, aid with digestion, and support a healthy immune system. I love mixing my scoop with an acai bowl or smoothies. And right now, Athletic Greens is doubling down on supporting your immune system during the winter months. They are offering my audience a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit my link today. You'll basically never have to buy vitamin D again. So, whether you're looking for peak performance or better health, covering your bases with Athletic Greens makes investing in your energy, immunity, and gut health each day simple, tasty, and efficient. Simply visit athleticgreens.com forward slash leaf and join health experts, athletes, and health-conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com forward slash leaf and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. The link and offer details will be in the show notes. Okay, you talk about if the queen, in the chapter, if the queen had balls, I loved it. You talk about the presenting problem that a patient comes to therapy with. And then you talk about, go on to talking about the uncharted territory. And then people don't care about inflection points when they come for their first therapy session. Mostly they just want relief. And they want to tell you their stories beginning with the presenting problem. And then you go onto how it's got to go through layers and layers and how they're very often coming to you for the quick fix solution and that kind of stuff. So what I'd love you to talk about there is how you, with your own therapy, how you talked about your boyfriend. And I was laughing about the idiot was wisdom, how your friends were with your boyfriend saying that kid hater or something like that, but, but they all supported you, which you want as well. But then you also wanted like a little bit of, you know, a bit of wisdom there too, which you got from your therapist, from Wendell. You started seeing a different perspective. So in terms of this, in terms of this particular chapter and in terms of this particular concept of the presenting problem and then the progression through therapy, I just wanted to talk a little bit about that so people understand that it's not quick fix and that it is a process. Yeah, well, I think two things about that. I mean, it's not a quick fix, but I also think that it's not like a years long thing necessarily. Yeah, also doesn't have to go for years. Yeah. Out of the experience. And so, you know, I think the presenting problem is the thing that people come in with. It's the thing, you know, like, here's what happened and here's why I'm here. But often the thing that happened happened because of some underlying struggle or pattern that needs to get looked at so that you can not only fix the problem that you came in for, but something more global. Like, how do you prevent that from happening in other areas of your life? 
you know, and I think that I think that in that first session, what people really want is they want to be understood. And so it's it's you know, I, I, I feel like there's this thing that we do in a first session that's really important, which is it's making people feel felt. There's this, this expression, you know, did you feel felt? And it, that means like, do I feel like they understood me? Do I feel like they were there with me? And if we could do that for the people in our lives outside of the therapy room, I think that's so helpful. We don't really know how to listen to people. So many times people come to us with something and we don't know what they want out of the conversation and we give them what we would want. Like if we would want a solution, we give them a solution. If we would want, you know, just to vent, we just let them vent, but maybe they want something different. So it's helpful to say to somebody when they come to you so that they feel felt. So you can do this in your relationships outside of the therapy room. When they come to you with something, how can I be helpful to you right now in this conversation? I want to be here for you. And they might say, I just want you to hear this. I just want to tell you what happened. Or they might say, I'm really stuck and I need you to brainstorm ideas for me. I don't know what to do. And I would feel so much less anxiety if I had some ideas or I had a plan on what to do. Right. So, you know, or maybe I just want to hug. I just really want to hug right now. Or I want to just like sit and watch TV with you or whatever it might be. And then and that that's one conversation, but maybe in a different conversation about the same issue, they're going to say, okay, now I'm ready to hear some ideas or now I'm ready to hear a different perspective. So it's really important to check in and make sure that when we're in relationship, that we're, we're helping people to feel felt and that you are asking for what you need so that somebody can help you to feel felt. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. And I am very respectful of your time. I know you have a, a, another appointment directly after this. So this is part one. I would love to invite you back at some point for part two, because I'm only on page 12 and there's a lot more pages in this book. <laughs> and we've just covered so many amazing different things and you've been phenomenal. Your wisdom is phenomenal. Your insight and your way of expressing yourself is phenomenal. It really is. And I just want to thank you for spending this time with me. How can people get hold of you? Well, first of all, thank you for the conversation. I'm a big fan of your work, and I, I really enjoy talking about this, and I hope it's helpful to people. People can find me on my website, which is lauriegottlieb.com. They can get my book. Maybe you should talk to someone wherever they get books. We're launching Here season it is. two. There it is. We're launching season two of the Dear Therapist podcast on July 20th, so people can hear season one now and season two starting in July. And they can find me on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and, you know, continue the conversation there. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. And I hope to come, hope to invite you back again. I hope you'll come back for part two. Because I think well, we've got you lots. So much. Been wonderful. It would be my thank pleasure. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Take Thanks, care. everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf.
This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.